been a real pleasure to be with all of you uh, this weekend, those that have been part of the, uh, the EQUIP meetings on Friday and Saturday. Those were uh, fun, a little more fun than I wanted in some cases. The questions were often quite hard, and there were people taking notes, which is unnerving. I'm looking over at the former professor uh, who was taking notes on everything. <clears throat> And I'm used to people taking notes, just not people taking notes and then looking <laughs> like that. Um, I don't think they were completely censorious, but they were certainly uh, disarming. And in the brief time that I've been here, um, I do want to notice something that may have become invisible to you. Um, you are an unusually uh, compassionate and loving body of people. Uh, this ought to be ordinary, of course, because it is what the Holy Spirit is doing in a church, in binding them together. But because you spend most of your time together, it's likely that it drifts into the background, and you come to think that it's the way that it just is, as a matter of the way nature works, that when people spend a lot of time together and their hearts are joined in common purpose, that they come to like each other more, and that they find it easy to set aside their own desires and to seek the good of each other and especially to seek the good of those who need help. And this is not natural. Uh, by nature, we are selfish and grasping. And the fact that it isn't that way, and I've felt it among you while I've been here, is a testimony to the Spirit's work. And I wanted you to hear that because it's possible that you've come to think that it just happens. And it doesn't. It's the product of the Spirit's work and of your concerted effort uh, to pray for each other and to speak the word of truth and life into each other's lives. Uh, so uh, take heart and be encouraged. The music indeed was glorious, but even more glorious is the love that you show for each other, and you should be encouraged. Um, I fear that what I'm about to do is going to make your life worse. Um, and in that case, you should ignore me. Um, I would like for you to be polite, and it, as you are ignoring me, if you would not walk out, uh, that would be slightly, um, that would be disconcerting. But it is possible that at some point you'll say, this is not helping me in the least. Um, I knew what to think about that passage. It worked just fine. He's making things worse, and, and then it's fine with me if you uh, quietly take out your phone, put in the headphones, you know, don't bother other people. Uh, but it, I don't know. I'm sure there's interesting things on YouTube because there always is. Um, as James Corden tells us in his really funny YouTube video, YouTube is where time goes to die. <clears throat> I'm going to be looking this morning at James chapter 1. And it is, for me at least, um, a puzzling and challenging passage. It, it includes a great promise but it appears to be a promise that comes together with a kind of trick, um, a kind of unbreakable lock, uh, so that I am unable to take, uh, take uh, hold of the promise that's extended there. Uh, if you want to follow along with me, it's on page uh, 1011 in the Bibles in your pews. And I'm going to be reading James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And when I'm done, I'll pray for us in the time that we're going to spend. Uh, 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, even as we hear your call that when we lack wisdom, we should ask you for help, we know that our need is great. And we ask that whatever else we decide as we consider this passage, that we will, we will not be deterred for even a second from running to you for the wisdom we so need. We ask that you would open your word to us, even that you would open your word to me as I attempt to talk through this. We ask that by your spirit, you would be exalted and that you would clear from our eyes confusion that may settle, that you would calm our hearts and that you would draw near to us even in this hour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason this looks difficult is it appears that uh, James extends with one hand what he takes away (laughs) with the other. He says, if you lack wisdom, pray, but don't pray if you have any doubts. And uh, usually the thing that makes me think I need wisdom is that I have doubts, and so I'm kind of stuck. Uh, I can, no, I, no, I can never get started. I can never pray because I can never extinguish all of the doubts that I am supposed to have removed before I pray, and otherwise that I'm going to count as this double-minded person, unstable in all that I do, who should expect to receive nothing. Um, this problem is not, uh, it's not unique to me, uh, and the reason I know that is I teach philosophy at a Christian college, and I teach very bright kids. I love my students at Covenant. They love Jesus. They're uh, quite academically ready. They, they like each other. They're afraid of me, um, which really doesn't make any sense to me. I am just cuddly. I don't give great grades. Um, there's another philosopher at the school, and he wants to take you to breakfast, and he wants you to, and he wants you to go on hikes with him, and I'm not like that. Uh, and so it's surprising that anybody ever comes to me, but they do. Covenant students come to my office, uh, only they, and it's hard for me to, I can't move much here, uh, but students come to my office and they do it crab-wise. They look to make sure nobody is seeing them come into my office because they know why they're there and they figure it must be on some billboard above their head that they're here because they have a problem and it's a problem that might disqualify them from ever being taken seriously as a Christian leader. And most covenant students rightly uh, have an ambition. It's It's a godly ambition that they would be the sort of person who could be trusted to help the church go forward. And they think that the question that they're going to ask me, if anyone hears them ask it, is going to be the end of that hope. 
So they come in, they slip in, and they very quietly say, um, I have doubts. And the next thing I say turns out to be the, the single most important thing I say. We're going to talk a long time about the specifics, the specifics of their doubts, the particular things that are going on in their life that probably are complicating the doubts, the sins that they're nurturing, the lack of sleep that is making it even harder, the incredibly terrible diet that is making harder on beyond that. I was right. So they're doing all sorts of things to make it harder. But the, the next thing I say has nothing to do with any of that. The next thing I say is, so do I. And you can see them relax. Because it's the first time anybody who should know all the answers, admits that he doesn't. And then they think, wait a minute, I'm not alone. And, and then they, the next thing they, wanna, they, they say is, do other people know that you have doubts? Yeah. Uh, the administration of the college knows, all my colleagues know, and do they still trust you? Yeah, well, you know, within reason. Uh, they tr- but I'm not disqualified by the fact that I have doubts. I've never had a student say, wait a minute, James says that makes you a double-minded man, unstable in all that you do. That would be a fun conversation, I suspect. (laughs) Really? What else do you see about me that makes me unstable and double-minded? But this is a puzzle. The doubt of this kind, and and it, it turns out that there's really only three kinds of doubts that students end up expressing. And I think they, and from what I've read, they turn out to be typical of Christians in general. There are three kinds of doubts that drive you to the point that you think the only safe thing to do is shut up. You have a question about whether the gospel is true. You have a question about whether it's worth it to follow Jesus. The question about whether it's true is more a question for older believers. The question of whether it's worth it is more a question for younger believers because they've got their life in front of them and they know what it's going to cost to follow Jesus. And they suspect that there's going to be stuff that they're going to regret giving up. But the most pressing question, and it's one that I have not experienced much, but I take my students' word for it, is that they wonder whether the gospel is for them. They, and not in the sense of whether it's something they should adopt. They know that Jesus died for sinners, but they don't know whether Jesus died for them. Could it all be true for me? Uh, and that turns out to be the hardest one for me to answer. And it, 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 usually it's the result of, uh, in their lives, of not having people around them that showed that it's possible to be loved even as they get to know you better. They, just, they think that they're too unlovely for God to love them. And what they need to hear from me is that, that I love them insofar as I know them and am able. This doesn't answer the question of what to do with James 1, though, because we still have this problem of how we can ever get started. It looks like we have to have our doubts removed before we can pray for the wisdom that would make the doubts diminish. Uh, It turns out that uh, the Bible has a lot to say about doubt, and we're going to look at uh, a handful of passages because we're going to go to Scripture to answer the question that that arises in my heart about James 1. 
it's really tempting, especially if you're a professional thinker like I am. Uh, professional philosophers think that probably the best thing to do is to go think hard and figure out a way out of the jam that you're in. It's usually an intellectual jam of some kind. Treat it like a puzzle and then solve it like a puzzle. And it's, it's not appropriate to treat the Word of God that way. When we have a question about what God means, we should go ask the Word of God rather than our own understanding. If I put it that way, it's obvious what we ought to do. But let's look at the way the rest of the Bible, um, and the New Testament in particular, talks about doubt. Um, and let's go directly to a passage that deals with wind and waves and people being tossed about like something uh, adrift. Let's look at Matthew 14. Uh, it's page 820 in your pew Bibles. You know the story. The details of the story turn out to be fairly important. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus isn't with them. It's at night. The storm has come up. It's not the storm that tosses the boat that Jesus calms, but they're, they're on the sea together, and they see Jesus. And when the disciples, starting at verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice, P Peter, in the midst of a doubt that was dragging him under the surface of the water, cries out, he prays, he cries out, does Jesus say, um, I need the doubts taken care of before I'm going to help you? Uh, th that's the rules. You have to pray in faith, no doubting, and then I'll help. No. Uh, what Jesus does is Jesus first takes his hand, picks him up, and while being held by Jesus, he, Jesus uh, Peter is told, why was your faith too small? Why did you doubt? Whatever else is happening in James 1 is consistent with this. The solution is not, James doesn't get it right, Jesus does, or Jesus hadn't gotten the memo yet, and James finally gets it. That's not the solution. So if we're going to make sense of James, it has to be in light of what Jesus does. Uh, you're aware, you, probably you're, you know this story. It's possible that you, don't, that you haven't noticed this one. Uh, go to Matthew 28, the very, very end of the book of Matthew. It's on page 835. Um, at least for me, what happens just before Jesus gives the Great Commission is surprising. Possibly more than surprising. Flabbergasting kind of thing. So I'm going to start reading in Matthew 28. Jesus, uh, you, we're at the end of the book of Matthew. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's appeared to over 500 people. Um, he's... Uh, <clears throat> He's been seen, he's eaten fish, he's made it evident that even though he was in fact dead, he's now alive, he has a resurrected body, it's shiny, 
However that worked, I don't know exactly what it looked like. But Jesus is in his resurrected body. And so we read in Matthew 28, starting at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, I'm reasonably certain that in, I am never going to have a clearer vision of Jesus than the eleven had of Jesus on that mountain at that time. They are looking with earthly eyes at the risen Jesus in his resurrected form. And we're told, we're not told, some worshipped and some doubted. We're told they all worshipped and some doubted. They're looking at the risen Jesus and they're doubting. And Jesus' response to them is not, what is it going to take, you losers? I'm right here. I'm risen from the dead. Why are you doubting? That's not what he says. To doubting worshipers, Jesus says, I have a mission for you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go. He doesn't say, figure out what to do about all those doubts, and then I will send you on a mission. He says, in the midst of your worshipful doubting, go. And I am with you always. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. It's a case where we're told that they are doubting, and Jesus knows they are doubting, and Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He just sends them. So whatever else we learn in James, it's consistent with this. Now, you might think, you're ahead of me on this, you might think, well, James is tough. He's the one who wants you to have works along with faith, and Matthew's soft. Uh, Matthew thinks that Jesus is meek and mild, a, a gentle kitten who snuggles up to you when you're afraid. And so maybe it's just that James is the hard-nosed one, he's the drill sergeant of the Christian life, and Matthew is the, the broken sinner who loves Jesus for being so very, very kind to him. Uh, but even Matthew says harsh things. He reports Jesus saying harsh things about doubt. Consider Matthew 21. Uh, this is 826, uh, page 826. So, Matthew 21, starting in verse 20. Jesus has just told the fig tree to, to die. <laughs> and the fig tree withered. And verse 20 says, When the di disciples saw it, that is, the withering of the fig tree, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt... You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus tells them to pray without doubting. Um, I can't remember ever praying without some vestige of doubt. It's possible that being a professional philosopher means that it's never going to happen that I do anything without some smidgen of a doubt, having been taught by some of the best, I'm not 
human skeptics, but reading people like, De like Descartes or Hume or the worst of them all, Shestoff, um, who's obscure, but he took the position that nobody knows anything at all, um, including that. Tricky. So what we, see in the, what we see in the Bible is we see Jesus treating doubters with compassion. Um, if I were to spend more time, even in Matthew, but in the rest of the Gospels, there are also places where Jesus rebukes and condemns doubters and calls them a brood of vipers, fit only for their father, the devil. So whatever's going on, there's this complicated story about the way we should be thinking about doubt, and that needs to inform the way we make sense of what James is saying in, at the beginning of his epistle. It's tempting to think that the problem of doubt is fundamentally just an intellectual problem. It's a kind of, um, it, it might just be a problem of putting together the pieces in the right order, like uh, doing a Rubik's Cube or something like that. But it's far more desperate than that because your doubts are confusing. They're upsetting. They're not just a mental problem. They're a problem that goes all the way down to your affections. Uh, they threaten your sense of security, your sense of who you are. Most of all, doubts are temptations. Doubts are Satan seizing the opportunity to whisper in your ear, you can't trust God. And the first thing to say about that is that when Satan tempts you, Satan's goal is to get you alone. Not just you alone, but you alone trusting in your own understanding. That you would think that you have to beat Satan one-on-one -on -one using only reason and no depending upon the word of the Lord because that would be somehow cheating. Um, uh, do I call you Chip or do I call you... Is he just Chip? Is that it? Okay. Um, Chip mentioned that I teach first grade Sunday school. Um, one of my favorite lessons to teach is the temptation of Jesus. Um, and my wife has made me stop doing it my favorite way. You'll see why. Um, but for a long time, I taught the temptation of Jesus. We'd have all the first graders in the room. Uh, April here, who I met, has a first grader, Kate. Right? So you, know, you should picture Kate, crumb crunchers. Um, and we go through the lesson, we tell the story of Jesus, he's, he's in the desert, he's 40 days, he's tired, he's hungry, Satan comes to him and says, if you're hungry, why don't you show that you're the Lord and turn those stones into, into bread, and Jesus' answer to Satan is the word of God. Satan, uh, Jesus himself answers the temptation of Satan's lies with the word of God, because Jesus just could just say, I am the word of the Lord, go away. But he doesn't. Jesus' answer to temptation is the word of God. And we go over this. We go through each of the temptations, and uh, each of the kids has their Bible open, and we have the verse highlighted, and they take turns. It's late enough in the air that some of them can read. And so they read, um, uh, You shall not test the Lord your God. So they practice. So we practice that when you're, you're tempted, you should say the word of God. There is nothing you could say that would be more powerful than the Word of God itself. So we practice. And then I say, I am going to go get the snack. Yeah, yeah, we're going to go get the snack. And, there, and my co-teachers have a craft over there. They go start working on the craft, and I go, get the, I go to get the snack. Well, I've left. Um, I have um, this entirely black 
running suit. It's, it's, it's under armor, and it's entirely black, and it comes with a hood that I turn around so that I am, I am in essentially a black stocking from head to toe. And my daughter has this absolutely excellent black cape, and I have black sunglasses, so I look like an enormous black bug with a cape. And after the kids have settled down in the craft and they're waiting for the snack, I come into the room and I say, ha, 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 are you afraid of me? I'm Satan. And the great thing about first graders is they believe you in a costume. They're absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, They believe puppets. I once had a puppet that was sassing me, and I don't change my voice or anything. I just said, you, I don't have to listen to you. You're not the boss of me. The kid got up, walked over, smacked the puppet. You can't talk like that to Mr. Bill. Okay, okay, okay. So I'm in this costume, and I go to whatever, whatever boy, and it's always a boy, said, I wouldn't be afraid of Satan if he came to me. So I go to the seven-year-old boy, and I put my hands on his shoulder, and I said, I heard you say you aren't afraid of me. And usually the kid just dissolves. <laughs> But the reason I was emboldened, I don't do it anymore, because it, it turns out to be traumatizing, at some level of traumatizing. <clears throat> the single best thing about teaching first grade Sunday school is if you do it long enough, you will see the kids that you taught making professions of faith. And you will say, that is such a wonderful thing. You watch them grow up, and they don't get a lot different. They just get bigger. Uh, and they're making professions of faith. And I've had kids, after making professions of faith, saying, you just about scared me to death when I was seven. But usually what happens, while this, the, the boy who's on whose shoulders I have my hands is collapsing, one of the other kids, usually a girl, usually a girl, will grab the Bible and start reading. Just wherever. Usually because it's open to the passages. You will not test the Lord. And then I'll scream and run around. Because I want them to see that the word of God drives Satan away. And this turns out to be true for grown-ups as well. Jesus himself answered the temptation of the, of the devil with the word of God. And so will we. Let's look then. I've got three ways the word of God can help us make sense of what James is talking about. And I can do this fairly quickly. Um, Uh, I could be really tedious, and we could go through um, every passage in the New Testament that has the word doubt translated into English, and together we would discover, I'm going to cut to the chase, together we would discover that there are two different, we could divide into two different piles. There's words, uh, there's places where the word doubt appears in English, and it's the Greek, uh, some form of the Greek word diakrino, which means to doubt as one who is above it all. To doubt the way a judge doubts it when the judge is listening carefully to the testimony, not invested, not, it's not an existential crisis for the judge. The judge is doing his or her best to listen to the evidence. It's a detached, not invested kind of doubting. You're just deciding from a distance. There are other passages where the, the underlying word is uh, the Greek word distazo, or uh, others are terasa. There's a whole handful of words. But all of them 
have um, a sense of being troubled, that you are in the midst of a, a struggle of some kind. You want to you want to hold on, but you're finding it difficult. You are this is uh, for you hard. Um, if if I was really bold, I turned out to be not terribly bold. I was going to say to Kate, say to Kate, if you were really afraid right now and you knew your dad was right there, what would you do? And uh, just show me. And uh, the reasonable thing for Kate to do would be to run, bury her head in her dad's lap, and be held. That would be the reasonable thing to do. She would still be afraid. She'd still be troubled. But she would have run to the one she knew would take care of her. That's the kind of doubting. That's a doubting. You're troubled. You don't know if you're okay, really. But you know where to go. And that's the Greek word that shows up in Matthew 14 when it's talking about the disciples being terrified in the boat or when Jesus says to Peter, why did you doubt? It's that kind, it's not that hand, it's that hand kind of doubting. It's the troubled and trusting. So there's trusting doubt and there's detached above it all doubt And that's the kind of doubt Jesus talks about in Matthew 21 when he says, if you have faith and do not stand back trusting your own understanding and pray. So faith rather than detachment, faith and being troubled are what it's like to be fallen and on this side of glory. If we divide these, now the question is, which of those words does James use? I'm hoping that you're rooting for it being the detached kind. And it is. In James chapter 1, he's talking about the kind, of, the kind of doubt that trusts its own understanding rather than trusting in God's goodness, which is where the conversation goes next in James chapter 1. So the first thing is to recognize that the Bible talks about two different kinds of doubt with two, two or more different Greek words but shows up in our English translations as just doubt. Here's a second thing, the second way that the Bible helps us understand what's going on, and that is to look at the way Jesus responds to his disciples and the Pharisees when they doubt. When the Pharisees stand back and they stand in judgment of Jesus and they don't trust him and they ask, why should we trust you? Jesus rebukes them. He says, um, You are my enemies. You are teachers of Israel, and you are leading them astray, and you're going to be judged for it. But when his disciples cry out in the middle of their pain and confusion, um, in Mark chapter 9, we have the father whose, whose son has been throwing himself in the fire. He has a demon that is threatening his life. And Jesus says, um, I will heal him. Do you believe? And, the, and the, man, the father says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Jesus heals the boy. That's the kind of doubting that trusts but doesn't know how, doesn't know how it's going to work. When the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is sleeping in the back and they think they're going to die and they cry out to Jesus, Lord, save us. Jesus stands up and says, peace. And it stops. And then after he stops it, he turns to his disciples and says, why was your faith too small? But first, he makes himself visible. And this is our call. This is our task 
is that when we have the opportunity, when people come to us and they express that they have doubts, the first thing that we should do is that we should make Jesus more visible to their earthly eyes by our love and our patience and our willingness to draw alongside them and say, I've been exactly where you are. Let us go to Christ together. Will you pray with me? This is how Jesus treats his disciples when they are afraid and they doubt. He shows his glory more, uh, more clearly to them. And that's what we can do for each other. The last thing to say is going to have to be brief. In Hebrews 11, we're told that we have all these heroes of the faith, all the people who have gone before, who show us what it's like to follow Jesus with eyes of faith. And if you think about the people who are mentioned there, are they people free from doubt? Abraham? Moses? No. These are people whose lives were racked by ongoing crises. They continued to follow the Lord even as they were unsure where they were going. And we see that the only one who has no doubts is Jesus. And he calls us to follow him. Faith and doubt are not opposites. Faith and doubt are ordinary. They're compatible. The opposite of doubt is not faith. The opposite of doubt is delight. It is our privilege to have that. I would like now to return to uh, James chapter 1 and close uh, by reading this and then uh, praying for us. But I'm going to read it, amplifying it to take advantage of what we've just seen about the kinds of doubt that the New Testament considers. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must trust God and not your own understanding. Because the one who sits in detached judgment is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that even with the limitations of our fallen um, and regularly self-interested and confused selves, that you would show yourself to us in your word, in the love of your people for us, And we ask that you would send us again and again to the places where you are to be found. Fill us with your spirit. Cause us to take delight in all that you've made evident to us. We ask that as we are troubled, that we would run to you, sufficient and caring and ready. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. invite you to stand, if you will, for the benediction and remain standing as we sing together the doxology. Uh, Dr. Davis will be leaving almost immediately after the service to head back to an important meeting at his church at Lookout Mountain.
but we'll stand out there for just a few moments if you'd like to meet him or speak to him afterwards. Receive God's blessing, and now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.